Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Decreation and Recreation, Part 1, recorded in October 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Thus far, we have talked mainly about creation as a foundational act. Whether we're talking about the creation of the universe, or the creation of the people of Israel, or the creation of a place for the people of Israel to worship, or the building of the temple, or the establishment, the foundation of the Davidic dynasty, we're always talking about creation in relation to the beginnings of things. And in all those narratives of God's creative activity in the Old Testament, they are all presented as though things will go fine. A perfect world is created. A people called to be holy is created. A perfect worship space is created. An eternal dynasty is created. And an invulnerable temple of God's presence is created in Jerusalem. All of these certainties, these, these solidities, are to be eternal. They're to be everlasting. That's how they're conceived in the mind of God in the way that they're presented in the stories that we've talked about. But of course we know Nothing is everlasting in this world. There's always history rears its ugly head and interrupts the, uh, the progress of things. And so what we're going to talk about today is how the Jews, and we can call them the Jews now because we're talking about the descendants of the tribe of Judah. The Israelites have gone elsewhere or they've stayed in the land and they're now called Samaritans. The literature of the later period of the Old Testament is fundamentally written by the Jews or the Judahites. Anyway, we're going to talk today about how the Jews responded to historical catastrophe, uh, how they responded to crisis, especially in these certitudes that they held so dear. Um, Again, that would be themselves as a covenant people secure in their covenant with God, secure in their land, the house of David secure in its rule, the temple secure on its immovable foundations on Mount Zion. We'll see how all those certainties are called into question by historical events, catastrophes that happen. And so today we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the temple, which we ended last time talking about. The temple as the space, the holy space where the holy people comes to worship. And remember, the temple is a map of creation. It's a map of the cosmos. It's a virtual simulation of the universe. Uh, And so how we worship in the temple, how we adore God in a sanctuary, uh, teaches us how to live in the world with one another and with the world. That was the theme of last talk when we were talking about the temple in creation. So now we're going to look at the historical career of the temple, its ups and its downs, And to a lesser extent, we'll mention a few things about the later career of the House of David. Um, It's ups and mostly it's downs. Um, And we're going to see how Jewish writers thinking about these events will continue to use the rubric, the language of creation, to explain them. 
the ups and the downs. These are creative events. And so I coined the terms decreation, so when things fall apart, and recreation, when God puts things back together again. And so, in theory, again, creation is supposed to be an eternally existing order. But we all know that history interrupts that order. So this is how Jews have dealt with that problem of evil, really. The problem of evil in human history. The problem of failure. Now, a bit of history, first of all. And I think I have the, some dates on the handout. The, the career of the temple is basically a career of empire. A career of great Near Eastern empires who dominated um, Israel along with the rest of the region and who either took control of or patronized or attempted to defile or even destroy this central institution of Israelite existence. We begin in the year 598 BC. Most of this will be BC, although we'll get into the AD just as a kind of historical appendix. So, uh, 598 BC, the Babylonian Empire, from what is now today southern Iraq, um, filled the vacuum, the power vacuum left by its predecessor, the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and they took charge of Palestine. And the House of David did its darndest to sort of fight them off to resist the encroachment of foreign domination, but it failed. And so in 598, as a punishment for rebellion, uh, most of the House of David and its supporters were deported to the city of Babylon, leaving behind a member of the House of David as a dutiful Babylonian governor, basically. He was called a king, but he was basically a governor, a subordinate, and some of the folks that were living around there. So that's 589. Five, no, 598. 586, so about... 15 years later or so, there's another rebellion, another uh, Jewish rebellion against the Babylonians. The Babylonians come squash the rebellion, uh, terminate the uh, sort of the puppet kingship of the remnants of the House of David, and they destroyed the temple. Following this, there was another deportation of people to Babylon, Babylonia more generally. And for about half a century, the House of David and its hangers-on, uh, lived and flourished, apparently, in, uh, in southern Iraq, as at the center, of, in the belly of the beast, as it were. Uh, in the year 539, so about half a century later, a couple generations later, uh, a new, an Iranian warlord from the Iranian plateau, what was then called Persia, entered Mesopotamia, entered Iraq, took it over, conquered Babylon, and instituted a new policy by which he encouraged displaced peoples to return to their original homelands to establish, to re-establish the cults of their gods. This was King Cyrus of Persia, 539. And the Jews were one of the many beneficiaries of this policy. So the Persian Empire lasts for a little over 200 years, and the Jews rebuild recreate their sacred space on Mount Zion. This is the second temple. It's completed by the year 515, according to tradition. And uh, a new priesthood is established. Uh, sacrifices are put in place again. Everyone's happy, at least if you read some of the, the writings. Not all of them are happy. But uh, 
the Jews lived fairly peacefully under Persian rule. Then along comes Alexander the Great, right, around 332. He, uh, he, so a Western European power from Macedon leads an army of invasion into the Persian Empire and eventually in the course of 10 years conquers it. Now, the, um, all the Jews that lived at this time, the late 4th century BC, as far as we know, they all were all subjects of the Persian Empire, whether they were in Palestine, Babylonia, Iran even perhaps, or Egypt, they were all Persian subjects. And so within the space of a few years, suddenly they were subjects of a completely new regime, a European power, a colonizing power. Uh, which were heavily indebted to Greek culture. So the colonizers came to stay and began what is known as the Hellenistic, or the Greek period of rule. That lasts three centuries, and there were a lot of ups and downs in there for the people and its temple, including one serious defilement of the temple by a Greek king, Antiochus Epiphanes, and a persecution that he attempted to eradicate Jewishness attempted to eradicate the identity of the covenant people within Judea, within the, the, the province of Judea of his empire. This is the first attempted genocide in history that we know of. If we define genocide not just as killing a lot of people, but as systematically attempting to erase their identity. So when we use the term decreation, this event in the second century BC was about as close as you can get, literally a systematic attempt to decreate Israel, whom God had created a little earlier on. So this involves both the temple and its people, and out of this event comes many new religious ideas that are important for both Jews and Christianity. Finally, the Romans come along in the first century BC, and they come to govern Palestine. Eventually, uh, a war breaks out, a revolt against Roman rule in the year 66 AD. The Romans eventually put it down, at the climax of which is the destruction of the second temple in the year 70 AD. So we begin with the, con the destruction of the first temple and conclude with the destruction of the second temple. So it's sort of a tragedy on both ends with some nice spots in between. All right, so let's think of some, talk about some authors, biblical authors, who evoke either the language of creation or ideas associated with it in relationship to the destruction of the first temple. Our first witness is Ezekiel, one of the major prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Ezekiel, who was actually in exile himself, he was one of the first deportees before the temple was destroyed, so he was living in Iraq. And in, the, in Iraq, he had many visions that God gave him of the future, the future of of Judah, his homeland. And uh, one of those was a vision of the destruction of the temple. Now, since the temple is the place where God has chosen to dwell, right, where his glory dwells on earth in one theology or where his name dwells in the other theology, um, shouldn't God defend his temple? After all, isn't that the purpose of a covenant? Your suzerain, the, the patron deity, is there to defend his own. The temple, remember, is a representation of a palace. If God is king, then this is his palace. Why would God, the creator of the world, the most powerful thing around, allow his own palace to be ransacked by a foreign invader? Well, the Babylonians had, a re had an, an answer. It's because our gods are stronger than your god, or your god has abandoned you. 
Uh, the Jews did not believe either of those things. They believed that they had done something wrong, and so God was punishing them or allowing a foreign power to punish them uh, as a result of their offenses. And therefore, they had a chance to control the future. They had a chance to change their ways, get back into God's good graces, and seek out his everlasting mercy. And so, 50 years later, when the opportunity arises, many Jews were no doubt jumping jumping in their chairs. But anyway, back to Ezekiel. So Ezekiel describes the, um, uh, the actual destruction of the temple, and he does it in a symbolic way. He speaks of the glory of God, the glory of God withdrawing from the temple itself. You remember that the glory of God descended into the tabernacle, into the heart of creation, back in the book of Exodus. Well, now Ezekiel explains that God God's presence lifts up out of the temple and departs. And he's actually going in a kind of divine hovercraft. This is the so-called divine chariot that Ezekiel's visions speak of that no one can try quite be able to picture because it's so complicated. But anyway, Ezekiel says, The glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. These are the, the guardian sort of creatures that guard God's uh, sacred place. And again, the glory of the Lord ascended from the middle of the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city before going, essentially, into exile. So one of the ways in which Jews imagined the, the implications for the temple of creation is that the creator of the world had gone into exile with them, but he had left, his presence had left the temple. So that's one of the images that relates back to creation. During the exile, Ezekiel also has several visions of a recreation, a recreation, both of the land of Israel and of its people. First comes in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God says, On the day that I cleanse you, Israel, from all your iniquities, I will cause the towns to be inhabited. The waste places shall be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled. And people seeing this will say, this land that was desolated has become like the Garden of Eden. Notice it's an appeal to one of the two creation stories. So the restoration of the land is compared to the Garden of Eden, the original creation. And that's nothing new. Remember in, in Numbers 22 to 24, a couple weeks ago, that's how Balaam describes Israel approaching its land, right? As though it was a garden by a river, like the garden of God. So that's one vision, the restoration of the land as a recreative act. There's also the next chapter, Ezekiel 37. That's a more familiar one to some of us, perhaps. This is the so-called vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And in this vision... God brings Ezekiel to a valley that is full of unburied corpses, or at least the bones of those corpses, and they engage in a little dialogue, not with the corpses, but Ezekiel and God. Uh, God says, mortal, can these bones live? I answered, says Ezekiel, O Lord God, you know. And then God commands him to prophesy to these bones and say to them, hear the word of the Lord. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you will live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So again, just as we have a restoration of the land into a kind of Edenic 
state, you have literally the breathing of the life back into the nation, metaphorically, of course, but again, this is a reference to the Yahwist creation story, where God breathes the breath of life into the man that he creates. Okay, so that's Ezekiel. Now, there's other things you could say about Ezekiel. Uh, he has an ideal depiction of the temple that takes up eight chapters at the end about this restored temple that he envisions God will put together. But let's move on to the end of the exile, the end of this period of a templeless people. Um, there's actually a very important text outside the Bible that, that bears some reading. It's a cuneiform document that was discovered in the 1800s, which is known as the Cyrus Cylinder. The Cyrus Cylinder is a glorification of Cyrus's conquest of Babylon from the perspective of the main priesthood of Babylon. And again, we know that one of Cyrus's policies was to patronize the various religious institutions of the various peoples that he was now coming to be ruler of. And obviously, he must patronize these people very well, because they have a very high opinion of him. Um, basically, the Cyrus Cylinder denies that Babylon has been conquered by a foreign invader. Rather, it says, once upon a time in Iraq, there was a tyrannous dictator who oppressed people. Marduk, the god of Babylon, looked far and wide to save his people from this oppressive dictator. And far afield, he found someone, Cyrus, the Persian. He called him by name, he took his hand, he elevated him to become his vice-regent on earth. Marduk, the king of the gods, chooses Cyrus to be king of the world. In the description of this tyranny that Cyrus supplants according to this version of events, uh, the evil king, the evil dictator, um, not only oppressed the people with forced labor, like the Pharaoh does in the Bible, but he also removed the gods from their places. What that means is that, for whatever reason, uh, this preceding king relocated the statues of the gods from certain shrines of theirs, certain temples, and brought them to Babylon. And Marduk was not pleased. In other words, both social order and the divine order were turned upside down. So what Cyrus didn't, he didn't conquer Babylon, he saved Babylon from chaos. This was a royal creative act of Marduk, the, 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 the king of the gods. And so Cyrus, uh, when he um, is brought forth to be king of the world, uh, he says he entered into the city of Babylon peacefully. He sought the welfare of the city and all its sacred centers. Uh, he removed forced, work, forced um, labor from the people. And then in a long passage, it says, the sacred centers, those sanctuaries that had been abandoned for a long time, I returned to them the images of the gods who had resided there, to their places, and I let them dwell in eternal abodes. I gathered all their inhabitants and returned them to their dwellings. May all the gods whom I settled in their sacred centers ask daily of Bel and Nebo, that's Marduk and another god of Babylon, that my days be long and may intercede for me for my welfare. So it's a good political stance, but you can see the language that, and the policy that lies behind his invitation that the Jews too may go back to their place and bring their god back to his place in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And so that is the context from this extra-biblical document that we can help make sense of 
the greatest creation story in the Bible, which is Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. Uh, it's even possible that Isaiah made use or was sort of a counter-propaganda to the Cyrus Cylinder. You know, here's one priesthood saying, our God did this. Well, there's a Jewish author saying, no, our God did it. And he uses exactly the same language to describe how the God of Israel calls Cyrus to do his will, to become king of the world. But first of all, let's hear some of the creation language of this very potent document. So this is, the, the, the writer of this is not Isaiah, even though it's part of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah lived 200 years before this, so unless he was really old, he couldn't have written this. Because this author speaks not, he's not predicting a future, he's speaking of a present reality. Cyrus is here. Anyway, in chapter 44 of Isaiah, you have the first of the really important creation passages that links all of this together. God begins, as he usually does, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who by myself spread out the earth. And then he says, here are some of the other wonderful, wonderful things I do. I frustrate the omens of liars. I make fools of diviners. Those who turn, I turn back the words of the wise and make their knowledge foolish. So he's speaking now about the, um, the prophets of other deities. I am the Lord who confirms the word of his own servant, fulfills the prediction of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and I will raise up their ruins. So we have reconstructing the land, recreating the land, and then in the very next verse, God says, I am the Lord who says to the deep, to the abyss, the chaotic ocean of creation, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. So again, we move from creation to contemporary political reality back to creation. They're one and the same. They're all the same thing to this author. And he continues, I am the Lord who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall carry out all my purposes. So notice Cyrus is the human agent of God's creative activity, his recreation of the world here. And he continues, he actually says in the next chapter, um, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to his Messiah, to Cyrus whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes to open doors. So notice Cyrus now has absorbed the role of the house of David. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed of Yahweh to rule the world on his behalf, just like Psalm 2, right, for the house of David. This is the key to understanding this creation story. In addition to the poetry of creation that, that uh, saturates the description of this event, a particular role, a royal role, the role of the house of David in founding the temple, the original temple, has now separated into two roles. The ruling role of the Messiah, of the anointed king, has been moved away from the house of David to the foreign ruler Cyrus, to the Persian em emperor, as it were. But the liturgical role of David as the founder of the temple the builder of the temple, the one who leads Israel in its worship, that role has now been absorbed by the entirety of the Jewish people. In a very important passage later on, let me see if I can grab this here. So here it is. It says at the very end of this creation story, chapter 55 of Isaiah, God says to Israel, incline your ear, come to me, listen so that you may live. I will make with you, plural, an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. 
So whatever was unique to David has now been, as it were, democratized. The whole people is now David, as it were. David in his liturgical, religious, cultic role. Cyrus in the political role. So, in a sense, this is, again, Israel as the priestly kingdom, Israel as the holy nation, uh, redone. But back to this thing about Cyrus. So, in addition to calling Cyrus by name, he, God says, I'm doing this for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen one. I call you by your name, Cyrus, though you do not know me. So, there's almost an admission that this vision of God being behind these events really is, you know, with, with the actual people like Cyrus not really realizing this, according to this author. And then you have a long, again, a creation uh, discussion about how God creates light and darkness. So it's a reference to the first creation story. He creates everything, including salvation, which is what Cyrus is doing for him. And then you have a new theme, something you do not hear elsewhere in the Old Testament, at least not in the earlier works, you have uh, the birth of a something like monotheistic rhetoric, monotheistic language, the belief in only one God. Back in Exodus 15, the Lord was simply the greatest of the gods. Back in Psalm 82, uh, God actually had to depose the other gods before he could assume sovereignty over the world. So our doctrine of the unity and the oneness and the exclusive existence of God is not really part of, it's not the way that many of the Old Testament authors think. They think more in terms of power and sovereignty as metaphors. But now, with this new reality, this new world order, this new creation that God is bringing about through Cyrus, just as there is now only one ruler in the world, as far as the Near East is concerned, so there is only one God in the world. It's not a matter of comparison anymore of the Lord being more powerful than others, God says, I am Adonai, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I arm you, Cyrus, though you do not know me, so that they may know, so that all peoples may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. God likes to talk about himself in this creation story. It's sort of praising himself constantly about his singularity. Uh, and notice that, in a sense, the sign, the proof of the pudding is Cyrus's military victories, his successful conquest of the largest swath of land in history up until that point. Afghanistan to the Aegean, the Black Sea to Egypt is all his. One world, one God. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, Log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.